Tony Birch is the acclaimed author of four novels, including The White Girl and Ghost River, as well as three collections of short stories. Most recently, his collection Dark as Last Night won both the New South Wales Premier's Christina Stead Prize for Fiction and the Queensland Steel Rudd Award, Queensland Steel Rudd Literary Award, as well as being shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Literary Awards. He's previously been given the Patrick White Award for his con contribution to Australian literature. Tony is also a poet with several collections to his names, most recently Whisper Songs. And adding to this portfolio of achievements, Professor Tony Birch has recently been appointed the third Bois-Bouvier. Is that correct pronunciation? Bois that's, that's perfect. Okay, Bois-Bouvier Chair in Australian Literature at the University of Melbourne. Tony will be the third to take up the mantle previously held by two other literary greats, Richard Flanagan and Alexis Wright. He's here tonight to talk about his remarkable and beautifully written new novel, Women and Children, a story about, amongst other things, the love and courage of two sisters, often seen through the eyes of one of their children, Joe Clooney. Please welcome Tony Birch to Millennium. <laughs> Let's begin with you, Tony, if we can. Let's start right at the beginning. How, how did you become a writer? At the beginning? Um... I mean, the two things that um, I suppose are influential was that um, I was a, a voracious reader as a kid, and I still am, so I got my first public library card when I was five when I'd started school, and I've never stopped reading, particularly, I read non-fiction, but particularly fiction, so I was, I was very well read, and I read a lot, and I think the second aspect of that is that I come from a family and community of, of that really value storytelling and that storytelling could be written down but of course it could be oral storytelling or more importantly for us, stories told around the kitchen table. Um, we were joking at the launch of the book last week, I don't know how many cup of teas there are in the book but a lot of the book is centred in the kitchen, yeah. either in um, Charlie's kitchen, that's Joe's grandfather, or in Joe's own home, and um, I have very strong memories, as I'm sure many people here do, of sitting around the kitchen, you know, having a cup of tea or having tea, as we call it, we didn't call it dinner, having tea, and, um, and talking and exchanging stories, and not to be overly nostalgic, but when I was a kid, you know, we had a black and white tally in the front room, but it wasn't as important as having a chat. Um, and, you know, I think like most parents and grandparents, when I, we have family dinners at our house now, so I have five adult children, four grandchildren, so there's about 12 of us. Everyone's on a screen. Um, even my five-year-old grandson wants his iPad. So um, it's not as strong as it was for us. So, so it's really that combination of literature and storytelling. Yeah, and were there particular writers who kind of influenced you in that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, the two obvious, I mean, the obvious one, I know you've got a copy of Ghost River there. Um, I love the Mark Twain books, um, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Um, I, I, I adored those books and they were books that I read several times very early when I was a young kid. Probably the most influential novel when I was a teenager is a book um, called A Kestrel for a Knave, written by an English author, Barry Hines. Um, then made into a great film by Ken Loach called Kess. I have a Jack Russell dog called Kess at the moment. 
And why that book was so important is that I read it in what we then called Form 2 or Year 8 yeah. in high school. For those who don't know the book, it's set in the north of England in a very poor industrial coal town. Billy Casper's the protagonist. He's a kid, probably about 12 or, no, maybe about 14 years old. Um, he's a beautiful kid, but he suffers a lot of violence, you know, bullying at school, getting hit by teachers, um, getting whacked by his brother who he shares a bed with. Um, but then finding this beautiful sort of area of wild outside the coal town where he meets and discovers the beauty of the bird, the kestrel. So when I read that book, I had an immediate affinity with the character, both his home life and his school life, because I, when I'd gone to school, corporal punishment was administered very liberally and I was very good at getting it. But we also live right near the Yarra or the Birrung River. Yeah. So if you imagine growing up as I, at the time I was living in a, a public housing high-rise estate, so it's all yeah, brutalist architecture. Um, but I could literally go five minutes out of the estate, sneak down behind the old cult brewery in Abbotsford, and I was on the river. And I spent, I reckon I spent most of my teenage years, or even from about the age of 10 to about 18, spent most of my time at the river. Were you quite a kind of solitary boy? No, I was, no, I, was, no I needed attention. Um, <coughs> No, I, I, well, it's interesting as a, as, a, as a, when I say as a scholar, I use the term advisedly. When I went to Catholic school, I was a very good student. So from prep to what we call grade six, I studied a lot and spent a lot of time on my own reading and studying. But then when I went to high school and we had left our suburb in Fitzroy and gone to the, our, our houses had all been raised for public housing. So all of our houses we lived in in Fitzroy were all knocked over for a public housing estate. We moved to Richmond to a housing commission and then I went to a state high school and I started to... Some people say I knocked around the bad crowd but I think I created the bad crowd and so I had a lot of mates and oh, okay. we got up... Yeah, we got into a lot of trouble. But on weekends we would spend most of our time on the river. In winter, we'd, you know, literally we're sort of doing walks. But in summer, we swam in the river all the time because it didn't cost anything and there were no people around policing your behaviour. Yeah. Um, so, no, I had a lot of friends when I was a teenager. But, um, yeah, most of the stuff we did was... It was really about freedom of getting down the river, which is yeah. what I loved. I mean, I, I heard you in, a, in another interview talking about this business of your childhood homes all being raised. I mean... For most of us, we have this experience because of the, the kind of rate of progress in our society during the last 50 years of seeing everything changing. But for you, it was kind of much more extreme. It was actually whole kind of suburbs, whole every, yeah. house, every house you'd kind of lived in was... was well, it, yeah, I once said, if you, if you don't want your house to get knocked over, don't move in next door to me because um, we literally... I was born in a house in Carlton, um, 92 Canning Street, I lived there till I was two years old and then the Housing Commission put a caveat on the whole block. So they, and we didn't own any of these houses, but we had strong communities there. They knocked that house down. Um, we then went to Afferton Street, 56 Afferton Street, Fitzroy, where I lived from the age of two to 10. The Housing Commission came and knocked that down. And it was about 13 acres in the old measurement to build four high-rise towers. We went to the Housing Commission for a while. We thought we'll be safe here. They're not going to knock down their own buildings. 
But my mum hated it. She really didn't like it at all. There was no privacy for women. There were communal washing lines, communal laundries, and she liked, she was more into solitude. And yeah, that thing when she worked in a crumpet factory, which was really hot, hard work, and she'd get home and other women had complained that her kids had done this. Or, so, yeah, mothers having to either defend their kids or discipline their kids. So she didn't like it. And so after about four years, we moved to a, a really great old rambling double-storey terrace house in Collingwood. And I love that. It was literally about 200 metres from Dykes Falls, which is part of the river behind the old Collingwood football ground. If, if you don't know Melbourne, at least you know the Collingwood Football Club. Um, there... And then they came and knocked that house down <laughs> to build the Eastern Freeway. They knocked down my, my Christian Brothers Primary. They closed down my other Christian Brothers School. And then they closed down Richmond High School as well. And my other high school, Princess Hill, they burnt to the ground. So. <laughs> they, did, they did rebuild it. So, yeah, so, yeah, it's a, it's a strange... It is a strange feeling because I live in Fitzroy now where I lived for a long time. Um, it's, it's an odd feeling. It's, more, it's, not, it's not so much the loss of the physical building because yeah, these were really run-down houses. It's not like they were worth any, or ours wasn't. But when I was a kid, we had seven households in two streets. So I had my grandmother next door. I had my great-grandmother until I was 13 across the, the next street. My godmother, who's on the front of this book, lived on the next corner. So it was the destruction of a community that was more problematic. So when my mum went to Richmond, her younger sister, Maureen, went to Northcote. Now, that mightn't seem a lot if you come from up here because it's probably in the old, maybe it's 8K away. Yeah. But when we, yeah, no one I know. In a city, in a city. Well, no one, know it, no one I knew had ever had a car and no one in our family had ever driven a car. I'd never been, well, I'd been the police car <laughs> when I was a kid <laughs> and I'd been in taxis. Yeah. You, get, you catch a taxi somewhere. But I, no one I knew drove cars. When I, yeah. this, is, this is up until 1966. Yeah. And in fact, there's a, a really odd story about one trip that you took in a car because there was this place, Rosanna, this, 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 this story. Yeah, has anyone been to Rosanna? Yeah, don't go. Um, <laughs> so, and there's a, there's, a, there's a happy ending version of a similar story in the book. I, I was wondering, because I was, yeah. I, I was, that was going to be a kind of supplementary question to this story because there yeah. is, the, the sister goes off to yeah. upset. So, so, so tell, tell us about this story. Well, what happened in, in true life is that the Catholic Church had this idea that really poor kids in the inner city, you know, poor white kids, Aboriginal kids, migrant kids, what you really needed was a holiday at Christmas, which was true because our parents couldn't afford holidays. I'd never been on a holiday. A lot of parents still worked over the summer in factories. And, yeah, we just sort of roamed the street and did what we wanted to. And what the church did was they had this sort of competition that they would send... Um, Catholic kids away on Christmas holidays with rich or better off Catholic families. But the way you did it was you went into a ballot and what was impacted on that was your grades at school, how well you did at school. So, you know, the nuns would regularly say, look, you know, if you want to go on the Christmas ballot, you've got to make sure you do your catechism and you do this and do that. So kids would go like crazy, right? And um, 
My brother and sister, my old brother and sister, they, they, I mean, it's like saying you went to the moon. They went to a place called Coryong on the Victoria New South Wales border and they went in an aeroplane. Now, imagine if it hadn't been in the car, but you went in an aeroplane. <laughs> and we just couldn't believe it. I was just astounded. So I said to my mum, I want to go in the ballot next year. And I was, I was only in, I was about seven, and I won the ballot because I was actually a, a good scholar in, in primary school. I was too scared not to be. And <clears throat> one day this woman came and pulled up in the house. And I know it sounds like a cliche, but it was. She had a, a little powder blue Morris Minor and she got out and she had a twin set. And when she got out of the car, she was carrying a handbag. And my mum thought, why she got her bag? Like, why would you get out of the car and put your bag on your arm? You, you know, you know. So she was there to pick me up to take me on the holiday. So I got in the car with her and I had a cardboard suitcase and we drove off and we, we drove down Brunswick Street, up Heidelberg Road, and there was only about 20 minutes in the car and we pulled up outside this cream brick veneer house in 49 Quinn Street, Rosanna. And I thought, oh, we must be going to pick some other kids up before we go to the airport. <laughs> and she goes, oh, we're here. And I thought, what do you mean we're here? So I get out of the car and I take my suitcase, go into the house, and there's a family, like the dad and a boy and a girl sitting in the kitchen, and they're just looking at me like of some sort of, and they didn't say anything, you know, like, like I'm a freak, you know. And then dad, the dad eventually, he gets my cardboard suitcase and he opens it and, you know, he's, I've got a few secondhand clothes and a book. And he goes out the backyard and I remember those old Besser brick sort of furnaces. He, he puts it all in the, in the case in the furnace and then he sets fire to it and burns it off, right? So I'm, I'm standing there thinking, oh, this, is, this is a bit weird. So <clears throat> they, go, they took me in <clears throat> and the boy's name was Harold and they said, oh, you can have Harold's clothes, like his second-hand clothes, but they were, they were really nice clothes. So gave me all these sort of... And they were like little sail suits and then I'd, I'd never seen seawater. So um, <laughs> they gave me all these clothes but then the terrible thing that happened was they took me the first day, they took me to a barber and had all my hair shaven, shaven off. I had beautiful hair, believe it or not, <laughs> and shaved my hair. And then the day after that, they took me to a dentist and had all my teeth, my back teeth taken out, about eight teeth. So... Are, are, are these child teeth? I mean, the... No, no, I just got my second teeth. So I, until I was able to afford to get what I now have... Um, I don't know, where I go, Gleaming Smiles or somewhere, <laughs> um, with my superannuation. Um, no, I had no back teeth for the rest of my life until I was about 60. And um, the other, so, and then the weird, but like, it sounds weird. I'm just thinking, what's going on? Why would my mum do this? And then I was supposed to be there for a week and I'm there for about a week and a half, getting on to two weeks and I'm not going home. And then the dad had organised these sort of... It's, yeah, remember the old show, It's Academic? He'd organised these where we had to do spelling tests and arithmetic. And both the kids went to private Catholic schools. Another girl went to... Um, it was called Girls' Academy. It used to be in East Melbourne, then it went out to the suburbs. And I blitzed them in the It's Academic and the dad was really annoyed with me because I was smarter than his children. Um, and then, unbeknown to me, the... They had called the church and said they would like to foster me 
and I could stay with them and could they talk to my mum and dad about me being given to them for foster care. So the nun walked around in my mum's house and said, oh, they one if you're interested, because you know, you've got five kids and it's only got a one-bedroom house, you know. He could... You can afford to lose one or two. My yep. mum said, it's OK, I'll talk to my husband. So she went straight up the pub, gave my dad the address and said, go and get him. <laughs> and, of course, then my dad and three mates and <laughs> turn up on the doorstep. And, uh, and I swear on this, this is really... This is seriously true but really funny. In the garden, they had, this is in 1964 or five, they had one of those plaster Aborigines on the front with a spear and then four real Aborigines turned up on the doorstep. <laughs> and I still remember, they said, I can go. And I, before I went, I went in the bedroom, I grabbed some of the clothes and went, and I still remember when I went home, my mum was hugging me and crying and being, feeling really guilty, but my brother saw the sailor suit <laughs> and he put it on and was just sort of, you know. <laughs> he, he just thought it was fantastic, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> a little supplementary there. Was, was there any holiday? What are you talking about? I got my teeth out and I got my hair cut. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was a holiday. <laughs> No, that, that was, I mean, no, having said that, I should give them their due. They took me to the comedy theatre to see Wizard of Oz. The worst irony of that is when we drove to the comedy theatre, which is in Exhibition Street, we drove straight up Brunswick Street, one block from my house. So we drove past, past the house up the, no. And then weirdly, the year after, as, as much as you won't believe this, my mother's, I won again. <laughs> and my mum still let me and my older sister Debbie go. And we went to New South Wales on a train, got off the train at Albury and we had that, yeah, with your names and a pin. And this <laughs> farmer who had to come and meet us with a priest, I'm going to swear, okay? Like he's with a priest. The priest is standing there and the farmer says, oh, he's too fucking small. <laughs> He'll never be able to work. And the priest goes to him, don't swear, and goes, no, he'll be fine. But what was so great about it, they were, they were like Maren Park Heddle. They were, the poor, they were poorer than us. <laughs> so we spent most of the time in a swamp or a dam probably out the back of the house in these tinnies with their kids who were like about 12 of these mad poor Catholic kids just from mud at each other. <laughs> so, so that was a great holiday. <laughs> and what was funny, he did want me to work and I was about eight and he, he had to, um, it was a drought, or I think it was a 67 drought, I think. He, he had to, he had sort of bags of, yeah, yeah, I don't know what a tree looks like, let alone a cow, but he had bags of stuff to feed his cattle with and he had to get on the back of a ute, open it, and then as the ute drove off, and he'd get a line of feed. Yeah. If there's any farmers here, you'll know this. And he said to me, you can, <laughs> you can drive the ute. <laughs> so he put a thing on the floor. So it, it, all I had to do was steer it. I didn't have to accelerate. And then when I got out, it was 
like it's supposed to do a straight line and it was just sort of all over. <laughs> and that, he just said, oh, just go back to the swamp. So, so I, I just, I just, yeah. So, and because it, it was in a drought, you weren't allowed to have a shower or a bath. You could only have a, a hand wash. So my, and these kids, we were just all covered in mud the whole time. Yeah. Been very good for your skin. Yeah, apparently. Do, 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 do you want to give us a little reading? Um, yeah. Actually, that's a good idea for a novel, that, isn't it? So. <laughs> I just made all this up, by the way. So. Lucky my mum's not here. She'd go, it wasn't like that, and then she'd tell her version. Okay, I'll just read from the start. The nuns who ran our ladies' school shared the same first name, Mary. The head of school was Sister Mary Josephine, followed by her deputy, Sister Mary Agnes. Next in line was the head of junior school, Sister Mary Bernadette, and on it went. At the commencement of each school year, the nuns paraded into school hall, wearing a starch white habit with a set of black rosary beads and a silver crucifix drawn around the waist. With the arrival of the colder months of the year, the starkness was discarded for a dull brown colour, more appropriate for a school existing perpetually in the shadows of a church of the same name next door. The church and school had been built in the late 19th century, indestructibly, from slabs of bluestone rock. Our Lady's Church sat in the middle of an inner city suburb with a reputation for hard men and their crimes. From robbery and menace on the street, to family violence behind closed doors. It was also a suburb of sectarian boundaries with the Catholic community in no doubt that they lived under siege by Protestant leaders who dominated local government and business. Police were more likely to be Catholic, which produced mutually beneficial relationships between local crime bosses and the constabulary. (laughs) Religious dedication was largely an affair of women and children. Most men never bothered with a conversation with God, leaving it to their families to attend Mass and pray on their behalf for their numerous sins, at least until the men aged and became more concerned about the afterlife awaiting them. It was only then that they attempted a peaceful exchange with God. Now, I'm, I'm, just, I'm going to go on a completely different tangent here for a minute because I'm going to ask you a kind of Philip Adamsy sort of question, you know. What is the Bois-Bouvier Chair of <coughs> Australian Literature at Melbourne University? Well, the, the Bois-Bouvier Chair is um, named after um, Miriam Bois-Bouvier, who's the French consul in Melbourne. And she is a woman who's very interested, so she's from France, obviously, has a very strong interest in Australian writing and migrated to Australia many decades ago. Although she's still got strong connections in Europe, she champions Australian writing. The chair itself was a endowed chair. So basically an endowed chair quite literally means that the donors of the chair put up $5 million and that means that that chair is, um, the finances to support that chair remain in perpetuity. Um, that's what you need to literally ensure that it will always be financially supported. And then um, her and her husband, who, her husband is a man called John Wiley, 
who's oh. a very successful merchant banker. Oh, not, not the Wiley publishers? Uh, no. No, okay. No, a Wiley of Wall Street. He, he, <laughs> he worked on Wall Street in the 1980s. I've met them both. They're both very lovely. And in general terms, the, the chair's role is obviously to promote Australian writing but also to produce their own writing. So you're literally... Part of the position is to continue to do your own work. So I was finishing this book this year. But what has happened in the role I think that people would be interested in is that I'm the first recipient of the position that wasn't a captain's pick. So it was advertised. Um, a lot of writers applied for it. There was a, a criteria of you know, expectations. And when I was shortlisted for the position, um, I was then asked to present three major projects that would introduce different communities to Australian writing. And that was because the donor family, although there's no interference with what you, what you do specifically, they wanted to see, to be honest, they wanted to see their money spent on promoting writing and getting people involved. So my major projects, and we're coming to the end of the year, so it's good to talk about that. <laughs> I began a three-year project, so it's a three-year position with a wonderful um, state high school in Melbourne's northern suburbs, um, Preston High School. Um, the principal there is an ex-student of mine, an incredibly dedicated and really just a gun teacher. So my three-year project is to work with right across the school cohort, doing creative workshops, particularly introducing them to Australian poetry, um, First Nations um, fiction writers. And we do that by introducing them to the writers, but also running creative workshops for them across the year. And it's also me, the word might sound a bit heavy, but training the teachers how to engage them with new writers yeah. that they haven't met. So we've just finished the first year of that. Um, I've got, no, this would be wrong to say this, I'm involved in a, what's called a narrative medicine course and project. So a wonderful doctor in Melbourne, Mariam Toki. Um, she went to the United States, studied there on what's called narrative medicine in a medical school. So she's a GP. Brought the program back to Australia, asked me if I'd be involved. Initially, it was could I run a workshop or two? And I remember saying, well, just hold on. If I get this position, I could do a lot more. So we're now working very closely together. The principle is pretty straightforward. It's to train doctors to be better listeners, to understand your story. Um, we learned in the process that um, the average time, and if there's any GPs in the room, I apologise beforehand, the average time it takes for a GP to interrupt a patient who's, you know, what's wrong with you, is about 23 seconds. So it's about saying to doctors, when someone comes to see you, you might start talking about something that doesn't seem to be about your illness. Yeah. But the idea is you might be deflecting, but even if you're not, you might come and say, look, I'm really worried about my daughter. She's having problems at school. And the doctor knows, okay, well, there's an issue there that a stress that whether you might come in for a bad back, that that's important. So it's about teaching doctors to be listeners. So we do some exchange of storytelling, but also we, we run creative writing workshops as part of that. And all of the doctors that we've worked with this year, so their second year 
um, medical students. It is an elective. So although they're banging down the doors to get into our classes, so there are a lot more people would like to do it than we have been able to take in. They have actually said that as well as the listening exercises, writing and writing fiction or writing narrative, it's really taught them the value of story. So when they've opened up and written stuff about their own self, they, what they're seeing is in those pieces of writing how much they're engaged with their own emotional self in ways that they haven't been. And, and again, people may know that traditionally, and it has changed to some extent, the formality, the relationship between a doctor and patient and you know, not to get involved, not to convey emotion, it can in fact become very, very problematic. And it's about doctors not, you know, yeah, if you go and see your doctor and say, I've got this problem, you don't want your doctor to say, well, you think you've got troubles. Yeah. <laughs> but, but like I have a great GP and we're both runners. And when I go in with a running injury, she will talk about, well, last week when I was at Princess Park, I tr yeah, so it, we, we understand what is a professional relationship, but also there's a friendliness there. So that's the second project. And the third project is partly doing stuff within my own faculty across different courses, but the main, the main one here is working with the education faculty. Again, working not here, working with um, established teachers who are already in the school system who want to teach Australian writing but either don't think they have the tools, want new resources or find ways to teach it. So there is anxiety around teaching Aboriginal writing yep. at, all over Australia. And in Victoria it's really problematic that two or three years ago on the, the main band of fiction texts and poetry there was no Aboriginal writing. Yep. And we know now that there are so many great Aboriginal writers out there, really good. So I, I introduced them to... Um, writers like Sam Wagon Watson, who's Brisbane-based, a poet I love, and try to get them over the anxiety to say, Sam Wagon Watson's great to teach because he's a Brisbane-based suburban or urban black fella. So what he writes about is about the city. So his dreaming is about the city. So I say, you don't have to think about, the only way to think about Aboriginal writing is to think, well, it's out there, it's you know, in the red centre or it's essentially in a, you know, part of nature, that sort of stereotype. By teaching Sam's work, you can say, this is about a young Aboriginal writer who grew up in the city. And of course, students love that stuff because it's about car culture, it's about... So there's, you can also, there's not that thing about, oh, this is about Aboriginal experience, so it's over here and our experience is here and it's hard to link those. I always say, use a hook. And the hook in this case is, might be a, a hot up V8. Yeah. It might be swimming in the river. Um, in my book, oh, you have the white girl there. One of the things I love about the white girl is about an Aboriginal grandmother and her granddaughter. But I love it when I go to festivals where an, well, a grandmother will put her hand up sheepishly and say, oh, I don't know if I should say this, but I'm not an Aboriginal person, but oh, when I read that about a grandmother and her granddaughter, I felt so much love for them. To me, that's beautiful because it's saying, well, the, the way into these books is about clearly there are different cultural experiences, but they're also really common cultural experiences. So I try to get people to focus on what is it that can connect you to a story that you feel an affinity with 
and then say, okay, and there are specific aspects of that that you can then learn about. And yeah. again, like, you know, I don't know regional, rural Queensland at all. I don't, you know, I don't cross Bell Street unless I have to get an aeroplane. Um, but, you know, again, I'm sure there are things up here that we hold in common about our families and, you know, grandkids. Mm. But the way you understand that up here is, of course, it's about how it, is impacted by your you know, your culture and and where you live. So I think you can really find ways literature, and it goes back to what I said about um, Kestrel for a Knave. The universality of that book is remarkable. Yes. The universality of a book that's written on the other side of the world that can connect with a twelve-year-old kid in Melbourne and think I I understand this kid. That's the you know the the, the beauty of writing that connects people. It is. It's. It's the um, and writing comes out of this ancient process of telling stories. The, yeah. the, or, the oral thing that we go back tens of thousands of years of the way that we've actually communicated w with each other. But it's also the process of the novelist in our time. There's a lot of kind of complex about this. That somehow the novelist should only write about things that they know. And mm -hmm. if an Aboriginal writer should just write about Aboriginal mm -hmm. people and white people should just write about white people and Greek people should write about Greek people mm -hmm. and women should write about women and all the rest. Whereas the job of a novelist, it seems to me, is surely to try and imagine yourself into other people's lives. And if you do that successfully, then that's, um, that's how it's going to... That then you're going to communicate in that way. Yeah, and I think that I mean, clearly there are different approaches that, that writers take. And this, this is not counterintuitive or contradictory. I think we all do write what we know, but not in the way that we think. So in other words, what Melissa's bringing to her book, yeah, to historical novel, I, when I was listening to Melissa, I thought, oh, I couldn't do that. All the research I'd have to do, it's too much work. <laughs> but I'm sure, there are, I'm sure there would be aspects of... Melissa's view of the world, the way she sees the world. She's talking about, obviously, yeah, these really strong, independent women who are lost to history and part of Melissa's writing is, it, well, I think it's a recovery project and it's also saying, look at these remarkable women. Now, that would come out, I'm sure, the way that Melissa sees herself and sees other women in the science community. So we are writing what we know in the sense that we might think psychologically and emotionally rather than did that happen to you or was that your experience? So in my work, um, the, I mean, so when people say, oh, so my first book, Shadowboxing, which is now about 16 years ago, it was very autobiographical in the sense that what happened to those fictional characters in some, some ways happened to me or my family. Since then, that's been much less the case with each book. But... Yeah how I understand the world and how I think about injustice, how I think about love, the ways that I think about those values are key to my work. So in, in Women and Children, a really good example of this would be to say, you know, this is a book in part, this is a book in part about a man, an outsider, who threatens a family and threatens a family because he's a violent man. Yes. and his violent behaviour towards a woman in that family. So I wanted to write a story about that and how that would be seen through the eyes of children, particularly Joe and his older sister Ruby. But that family, so Joe's family, in his home with his mum and in his grandfather's home, they're just both very loving homes. 
Yes. So my understanding or the way that I see the world in that way is that if I, I do think that we have to confront some issues like domestic violence, but I don't want to write a book that doesn't convey how people find love with each other to, to yeah. combat that. Or in, in The White Girl, which is about an Aboriginal grandmother and granddaughter and is a, you know, a stolen generation story, there is no, there is no, it's about the threat that Odette and her granddaughter face, yeah. but they overcome it and it's not visited in the novel. Yeah. And even in, even in Women and Children, we know we have a violent man in this book. I didn't describe any of the acts of violence in the novel. No, it, it's clear that there, yeah. that it happens off stage. Yeah, yep. it all happens off stage because I think for me uh, that would be voyeuristic. I think for me uh, I'd feel it would be exploitative and I wanted to show the impact of... I, I wanted to show the impact of, of it but, like, there's a seminal scene in the book between Ruby and her auntie Una, which to me, again, just highlights the love between a, a, a girl and her, her auntie. And also I have, I, I've, I love the physicality of that. Like, I, I do like the intimacy of um, physical touch in families. And, yeah, when you live in a one-bedroom house with a lot of people, you're sort of jammed up against each other. And there's a strange combination of incredible respect for privacy. So when we grew up, so this is my sister Debbie at her first communion, we didn't have a shower or a bath of any kind, so you used to have to have a, a wash of a night in a, a big tub in the kitchen, and that would mean my sister, well, all of us at some stage after tea would be naked. So it was really important to know that you couldn't go into that room, you wouldn't yeah, run in and tease your sister, aha, so you bum. <laughs> she would have punched me, but... It's, it's about being really respectful of privacy when you don't have a lot, but yeah. also because of closeness. Um, and I know it's in the Waikou. I still remember, you know, I'd, we'd be sitting on in the couch. So, again, yeah, my father was a crazy person, but I remember night we'd be sitting on the couch and my old sister would give me a hairbrush and say, will you do my hair? And, you know, that thing we had to do your hair 100 on each side? Yeah, you, I don't know if you did yours, but... <laughs> My, my sisters have to brush her hair a hundred times on each side, so she'd be watching television, watching Disneyland or something, and I'd be brushing her hair. And I, I, I love that closeness with, with my sister. Mm. The, the awful men, they, they appear in quite a few of your stories and quite a few of your books. And it's interesting about this one because there's two really delightful men in this book, but there is also the kind of the, the, the spectre of the awful father mm. in the background. And that kind of speaks to your own history and your family, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think that, look, it's interesting because if you go back to a book like Ghost River, it was, there's a wonderful character in there, Tex, who's an Aboriginal guy who's like this wise old guy who tells the boys about the deep time history of the river, but he, he's also homeless and he's an alcoholic. Um, and I had to be really careful how I wrote that character because it, it would be so easy to say, oh, he's an Aboriginal man, he's homeless, he's an alcoholic, you know. Yeah. That's such a stereotype. But I, I was able to give him love and value. So when I was a teenager and we hung around down the river, a lot of homeless men lived down the river and we weren't afraid of them. We'd talk to them and, 
you know, so he's one of these men. What I did in this book is that it's a bit, well, there is a character, um, similar character, Henry Lamb in, in, in Wycliffe, but I won't, I won't go back there. But in this book, it was that I have this boy, Joe, who's a very inquisitive boy. He's 11 years old. He's a bit troublesome, but, you know, nothing serious. And I knew that this man was going to come into his life in some way who would be reprehensible and very violent. And he doesn't see that, only sees the outcome of it. But I just felt I wanted to convey the loving relationships of older men in his life and his relationship with Charlie, who's his grandfather. Charlie's a retired street sweeper and being a street sweeper, anyone who grew up in the inner city, if you had a neighbour who was a street sweeper, you knew you had endless tennis balls to play with because they would, yeah, so they would bring stuff home and give it to kids, right? So Charlie's got this collection of everything he ever wanted to, yeah, you, you need a football, Charlie's got a football, you need a, so he has this loving relationship with his grandfather and by proxy also with a mate of Charlie's who runs a scrapyard, um, Ranji Khan. So these two old men are characters in themselves. They're both very loving. So I did want to write a character who would, that boy could really look to for great tenderness and affection yeah. as a counterpoint to what's happened to his auntie. And there are important reasons for that. One is it's true. So I knew there are men in my life who were much more. So I've written about in another short story, my, my grandmother had a boyfriend. She used to say it was a border. Yeah, I don't know if the term, you ever heard the star border? Um, he lived out the back, but he'd sort of creep up to the front room when anyone gone to bed. Um, and he was a scrap metal and junk truck guy. And he's a guy who would, yeah, he'd been in prison. He's a really rough guy. But when he'd come home, he'd say, he would just give me books. You've got to read this book. You've got to read this. Because he'd find books on the street. And really in literature. So a lot of my reading as a kid, as well as the library, was through, through him. So I had men like that in my life. So when I wrote Charlie in particular, I wanted to write a character. This boy would just love him dearly. He was very soft. And I think that there are two things that are relevant to this. Later in the novel, when something terrible happens, um, that Joe declares, I don't want to be here in his own house. I just want to go with Charlie. He just wants to be with Charlie because Charlie's house is so supportive. There's no violence in Charlie's house. So he just wants to be there. And the other issue that it does come out, it has come out in my work before, and I won't give it away, but Charlie and Ranji are two wonderful old men and there's a point at the novel where a woman who's been assaulted, Una, who is Charlie's daughter, they realise they can't get any help. The police won't help them. Yeah. The church won't help them. Um, Marion, Una's older sister, her ex-husband, who's a career criminal, he won't help because no. he's got a business arrangement with this yeah. troublemaker. So there's a moment where Charlie has to contemplate what can he do to save his daughter? And clearly the only thing he could do would be something quite direct. Yeah. And what we find is that he's unable to do that yeah. because he's too nice. And that might sound odd because his, 
His inability to protect his daughter, and I'm saying this critically, is based on him being a good man. Yeah. So it's it's complex. Mm. But I wanted to I wanted to show how someone who a man who who values love and affection is deficient in a violent world. Yeah. So and I, I was I probably didn't quite realise that until after I'd finished um, the novel. And it was interesting because as I'm writing, I'm getting to the end, I'm thinking, what's going to happen? There was a potential for something to happen that didn't happen that I thought, no, that wouldn't be right exactly. if that had happened. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I've got a note here in my thing because there was a very nice piece in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago written by Paul Daly yeah. about you and the book, except for one one aspect of his review and his conversation, which is where he said was that it was a, about domestic violence, female resilience and children who witness too much. And I guess that's kind of correct, but it didn't feel to me that that's what the book was about at all. The book was about the things that you've been talking about, which is mm. about relationship. It's about, it's about how male figures can be outside of the family and can give support. Oh, there was a whole lot of different things it was about. And yes, those things happen in the book, but that's more the kind of structure around which the book is, 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 yeah. is hung rather than its subject matter. If that's... Yeah, I just blame Paul for that. He's a poor listener. Um, <laughs> my, my feeling, actually, there was, a, there was a... I mean, when I say wonderful review, I'm not... When reviewers work on the book, not you, I, I, I think it's really helpful, but there was, a, there was a review in the Saturday paper last Saturday and I just thought, oh, yeah, she got it because she understood that aspect of it really yeah. well. And my feeling is that... Um, People who read the book, I don't think will be. I don't think they'll dwell on um, Ray Lomax, the violent man. I don't think that'll be the. No, exactly. No, yeah. I think it will be. I mean, people have already said that. Really, the dominant relationship in the book is between Joe and Charlie. Yeah. Um, having said that, the scene I love writing most in the book was when. Um, Una has come to stay with Marion and, you know, she's been damaged and she... And when I say damage, I think this is a terrible thing about domestic violence is the shocking... the extent to which women who have suffered violence can feel shame. So she feels ashamed of herself, which is terrible to consider. Yeah. Um, so she feels ashamed. But... The scene that I love writing most is when um, the mum gets out her record collection and they pay, play the records and Una picks a record, Marion picks a record, um, Joe picks a record and then they find a copy of um, Ada, the grandmother's 78 record of Wheel of Fortune by K-Star, which is my grandmother's favourite song. And then they dance. So that tenderness of that scene, dancing around the kitchen table, I, I really love writing that. It made me think of um, a lot of the women in my life, yeah, you know, when I was a kid who... So I, my mum was so young that she went to see the Beatles um, at Southern Cross in 64. She would have only been 20... No, how old was she? She was only 23, 24. So when I was a kid, my mum was listening to the Beatles and the Rolling Stone, but 
my grandmother had all these old 78 records. So we had this strange mix of sort of girl pop so, singing. So, 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 I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but there is a story in Dark as Last Night which has as the very central question, you know, the Beatles, oh, yeah. or, the, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Yeah, I, well, that's, that's the whole um, existential crisis of, of living on a housing commission in 1970. Um, <laughs> so I loved writing that scene most of all. And I, I do think that for me, the way I, I like to visualise writing, that scene a couple of other scenes between the two sisters, which is really about physicality as well. So I published a poem many years ago called Ladies' Lounge, and it was about how when men leave the street on a Saturday to go to the pub or the races or the football, women who were mostly in the house would take over the street and they would bring all their laminex chairs out into the street and they'd bring the radiogram out and put, you know, yeah, free KZ or something in Melbourne was paying early pop and yeah, Motown stuff, and they would spend the whole day doing yeah beauty treatments, but they weren't going anywhere. You know what I mean? So they would all do their hair, they would do their nails, they would do each other's makeup, and by the end of the day, they would just look stunning. But then they just have to go back in and cook tea and put the kids to bed. <laughs> Um, and they all wore, my mum and her sisters, all these amazing floral print dresses in the 60s. And the visual sort of technicolour of that, I used to think was amazing. But it was like a sort of a, a moment of carnival when all the men had gone. But it would end, it's like when the sun went down and they had to do all the domestic stuff. And um, so those images of women, women's friendship and it being physical you know, again, doing hair and stuff is really strong in, 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 in my memory, but also because I have four adult daughters. I have a son in the middle, but I have four adult daughters and my oldest granddaughter's eight. I was actually thinking this very thing on Monday. No, on the weekend, my granddaughter Isabel was having a school concert and my 27-year-old daughter, Grace, who used to work, she works in a professional job, no, she used to work in a makeup place, Mecca, I think it was called. She went over and did her makeup and sent a video and watching my daughter do my granddaughter's stage makeup, I actually, I, I was reminded of, of that. Now, I'm gonna say something here that I hope isn't too critical because your, your, your manner of speaking is so warm and so friendly, and yet you're actually an academic. And, and, <laughs> and this is not my experience of, of, of academia that I'm hearing no. here in some ways. And I'm, I'm kind of curious as to how, A, you became an academic, and how, having become one, you managed to bring your humanity you say academics have no humanity. No, 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 no not, I'm sorry, I'm not, um, not, not saying that. But, but look, I, I taught at university for a while myself, yeah. and I also, when I went to university, I remember thinking this process of, of studying history is killing my writing. Because yeah. I'm, I'm writing, uh, I'm being forced to write in a language which yeah. is the antith completely antithetical to, to the process of feeling, which is mm. what I actually want to talk about. Well, I can do that. Um, so I've done, I've done academic, strictly academic writing and I've actually, people probably don't realise my last professorial fellowship, which was five years at Victoria University, was working on climate 
change stuff in community. And some of the work that comes out of that, some of it has to be, well, is written academically. But to me, that's, it's the, it's the hardest writing to do. It's the least enjoyable. It's very physical, like when you do a day of writing an academic essay, you, you get up, you feel like you've been wrestled by an alligator or something because you, you get really tense. But the things I think that you say that are, that are right are that, um, I mean, I have the, the blessing of not going to university until I was 30. So I'd been a, and I'd had really weird jobs. So I was a telegram boy, my first job with the PMG. Um, I worked in an operating theatre in a hospital and I worked as a firefighter for nine years at Melbourne Fire Brigade. So by the time I went to university, I'd been 15 years in the workplace. So that gives you a different worldview, I think. It helped you. And like... So can I just ask, so what made you decide after nine years of firefighting? Oh, why did you suddenly say, I'm going to go to university? No, I didn't. I, um, I got expelled twice in the one year at different high schools when I was 15. I got expelled from... Richmond High School and then Princess Hill High School, both of which teach my books. I like to go back there. Um, and I was a terrible kid. I was a shocking kid at school, played up really badly. And then I drift, had sort of shitty jobs. But then when I went into the fire brigade, I was 21. There's a lot of downtime and, and I was just reading all the time. And I got to about 28 and I just thought I'd really made a terrible mistake of not to getting an education. Not saying that I wanted to be this or that, but I just love, I loved intellectual thought. I loved a challenge. And I was sitting in the fire brigade in the, what we called the mess room one day, and there was an ad that Broadmeadows TAFE College had just opened a VCE program, or then it was called HSC, in 1987, and you could enrol. And I just thought, I'll go and do a couple of subjects of a night. So I went and did English and English Lit. Did really well in the, you know, the HSC. Went back next year, did legal studies and politics. And then a woman there who was a great mentor of mine said, why don't you apply for university? And that, I just thought that was a ludicrous idea. And then I, I did and I got into Melbourne Uni and I just thought, I'll go. So I didn't have any real plan. And what was, the two things that were remarkable is that my mum's sort of been proud of what I've done, but when I told her I got into the university, she looked really shocked. And I, to this day, I think she, it was a fear on her face. And I reckon she thought, he's going to get found out. Yeah, he's going to be embarrassed there and, you know, stuff like that. And this is not a brag, and it annoys me now being an you know, academic for decades. I found university as an undergrad, I loved it, but it wasn't as hard as my year 12 year. I worked out at university, if you did the work, you were in front because a lot of undergraduates don't do the work. So yes. you're in front of half the field. You yes, know, exactly. it's like they haven't trained for a race. So, um, but I really loved studying. And even now, so I started at Melbourne Uni in 88. I had some time away. I'm still there and my wife's there and two of my daughters are there. But if people ask me what, and I was talking to the Dean a, little, a couple of weeks ago, I loved being a student at university. I loved it and I, I did very well because I loved it. And that, that's still the most enjoyable aspect. And it is really just, um, again, reading 
And not, I, I didn't do I did a PhD in history. So I taught history at Melbourne Uni for about six years. And I was so lucky, I, I enrolled in a subject called History 1F. Sounds really exciting, doesn't it? In my first lecture, it was held of a night. And in those days, and unfortunately they don't do it now, Melbourne University, like other universities, had a, a, a standard mature age entry. So people were coming to study at Melbourne University who hadn't done the year 12, but would put in a proposal to be getting as a mature age student. And a lot of them were studying part-time, a lot of them were older, and a lot of them were working during the day, so they did the evening courses. I did a, a history subject which was probably comprised half of mature age students and taught by the most passionate academics. Like, I know academics can get a bad run, but the people who taught me in those first three years of history were just fantastic. So I absolutely loved it. But to go to your, your, your point, the two things I think are problematic about... Well, one's problematic is that I don't know why, but say at a big university like Melbourne, it is that it's almost without being spoken, you leave your emotional self at home. So there is this veneer, which I think is really damaging. And in fact, can be damaging to people. So one of the things you don't see at my university is what I would call pastoral care. And I don't mean that in a formal sense. Yeah. A really good analogy of this would be, when I was in the fire brigade, I was a union rep, and I was in what they call the ranks. We had blue shirts, the officers had white shirts, and we went at each other all the time. But if any one of those men, and they were all men in those days, let's say um, someone in the ranks or the officer, say someone's parent died. When you went to the funeral, the union would be there, the men from the ranks would be there, the officers would be there, they would support families. I remember once I lost my whole pay packet in the days when you got paid cash, a guy, one of the officers who we hated each other, you were always at each other's throats. As soon as he heard I'd lost my pay packet, he organised to have my pay made up by all the men at the station. He came to my house that night with my pay. And when I opened the door and I thought, what's, he, what's Ted Harris doing on my doorstep? And he, did, he said, just hand me an envelope and he walked away. Now, when I went to the university, that really is absent and... I know once my head of department, I was supposed to go and see him at a meeting and he wasn't in his office and a friend of mine said, oh, he, his father just died. I said, oh. So I went back to my office and then five minutes later the phone rang and it was the head of department. He said, oh, sorry, I missed you, you and come to my office. So I went into his office and, we, yeah, we weren't friends or anything. I was only a junior academic. But like I would have in the fire brigade, I said, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that your father has passed away. He looked out his window at the clock tower for about 10 seconds and looked back and just continued the conversation. He didn't say, they, well, it wasn't like I was, he didn't comment. Yeah. And I've always found that that is, I think, a problem. And the last thing I said, my wife, who's a um, deputy dean in the arts faculty at Melbourne, who's much, she's quite posh, so if she was here, she'd be a very different night. Um, <laughs> I, no, I, did, I didn't mean to... I, oh, I'm, no, no, no. Although she does love her wine, by the way. Um, she said to me, Melbourne University loves to have one Tony Birch because they can say, look at him, we've got street cred. But they couldn't, they couldn't cope with two. <laughs> so and over the years, I, and I, when I say I've done things, it's not like playing up, 
Forgot oh, that's Tony's. Yeah, so I, I can be a bit, I try to get away with a bit of cheek, but also seriously, I, I haven't, I don't find any need to change who I am. But having said that, also, university changed me a lot as a person. I think it only reinforced my love of study. But, I mean, here's something. I come from a very tough working-class Irish Aboriginal family, right, and community. When I was a young person, I never knew one person who was openly gay or lesbian or queer, never one. And people in my community would keep that to themselves. Yes. Too scared. So when I went to university, I met so many gay, lesbian and queer people that have had a remarkable influence on me because you're working with people, you're, you're having lunch with them. So that you are, what you learn from that is, okay, socialisation really matters. You can be... You can be prejudiced towards someone if you don't know them, but once you know them, you've got to make a more informed decision. So that has been a great change or a great you know, life experience. And the other one was meeting Aboriginal students from all over Australia. So at the Aboriginal Student Centre at Melbourne, you'd meet you know, people from Torres Strait, from Tasmania, from Perth, everywhere, and the comradeship of those people, I still have remarkable friendships, you know, 30, 40 years, 30 years later with those people. So that those two things, which are really about the social values, I wouldn't have got if I hadn't gone to university. Yeah. Listen, I've, I've got whole heaps of questions I wanted to ask you, but I'm looking at the time here. I think we should maybe go to the audience. I know there's quite a lot of people in the audience who are big fans of your writing and probably got things they'd like to ask as well. So do we have any questions for Tony? From now, the please ask a question. I've flown, I've been in cars. Or... Yes. Um, I think that uh, the concept of going to university and, uh, and in professional life, this concept or the, the look that your mother gave you about you'll be found out. Um, I find that's a really interesting concept because that's really from my childhood, the expectation really that you would do well at university or do well at anything was probably not going to happen. So I wonder for you um, how you, you worked with your mother and obviously some of your family as well and then yourself, how you um, picked yourself up and just said, I'm, I'm going to make it. Um, this might sound incredibly boring. Um, there, there, look, there are several things. Um, one thing is that my home life in primary school was really chaotic. And that was partly just because of space. Yeah, there was one bedroom, and I'm not exaggerating, there were seven of us. One of my uncles was living there at a stage. My grandma was next door and she was drinking a lot. My dad was very violent, so there was a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, you had to share everything you had, which is the reality. So one of the things I loved about school, particularly when I went to, yeah, we know there are problems with the Christian brothers, but I, I excelled at the Christian brothers because it was very ordered and structured. So I'm really good, like postmodernists give me the shits, you know. <laughs> I need structure. I need really, you know. I remember a guy, I noticed I'm getting right off the track. I was in class one day and a guy knocked on the door and the door opened there was a guy there and he had a, a, a purple bow tie, a yellow shirt, polka dots, he had checks and he said, oh, is this postmodernism? And I thought, no. <laughs> he couldn't even get his outfit ordered. But anyway, um, I loved order. 
so that when I went to Christian Brothers, you know what I loved? I had those single desks and you lift the lid up and all your stuff was there. I used to, get, all my stuff was in really neat order. I knew that when I left school the day, if I went back in the morning, it would all be there. So I loved structure. And so for me in primary school, structure really worked and I did very well. And then we couldn't really afford to stay in the Catholic system and I went to a state high school. Unfortunately, I went to a state high school in 69. So I'm all for protesting about the Vietnam War, but we had all these teachers who looked like they just, you know, they're all about 21, they'd just been the Woodstock. And um, they're just all really beautiful, you know. And I remember this teacher said, oh, you, you're the children, you know, you're, you're the oppressed. You know, he's given this Marxist lecture to 12-year-old kids. If you don't want to study, I understand, because you've been downtrodden your whole life. So we said, oh, OK, we just went down the river, smoking, and then one day after about three weeks, he said, you want to come back now? No, we won't come back. So my high school was a disaster. And... As soon as I got behind, I just couldn't cope and I just got further behind. When I went to do, this is the boring bit, when I went to do um, the first year of HSC in 87, it's the same year I'd been running for about six years. So I've been running, I've got a chapter in a new book called Teacher, Teacher, which is Running Be a Teacher. I'd been running for about seven years. I wanted to run a marathon. My marathon coach said, if you want to really do it, this is how you do it. Structure, structure, structure. Your runner's diary, how much you're going to run each week. And while I was doing that, I was studying as well. And at the end of the year, when I ran the marathon and ran it well, it was like, that works. So by the time I got to university, I just thought, if I want to do well at university, as boring as it is, it's about having a really structured academic life. And I've always had that. Um, it's a way that I taught, so my creative writing students, I, I say, yeah, you don't wait for you know, cre- a creative sort of bubble. You, you do the work, do the work, do the work. And it's the same as my fiction. I, start, I started a new novel yesterday and I have a really disciplined way to how I will do it. So for me, it, what works for me is being really focused and structured on what I want to do. And if I don't do that, I, I really fall apart. Now, in regard to family, I think there's a lovely little anecdote because my mum had real fear of my not being successful. And, you know, I started... I, fe- I slipped into enjoying university very early and easily. And I still remember, I think at the end of first year, I'd done really well academically. My oldest sister at the time was working at Ring Grip in Abitur, which is a factory that tested spark plugs. And she said to me, yeah, when she saw that I'd done really well, she said, she said, oh, bugger this, she said, I'm twice as smart as you. If you can go to university, anyone can go to university. <laughs> um, then she went to university. My younger sister then went to university as mature age. So my older sister, she has a, a nursing degree, a teaching degree and a, a master's in psych nursing. My younger sister's a teacher. And then, of course, what happened because of that, this is the key for people who, if your kids haven't been to uni, I have five adult children. I never, ever said to my kids, you have to go to university. What I said was, if you want to go to university, that thought should be a positive thought, not I could never go. So, you know, my two older daughters have 
both been, well, three of my kids have been to Melbourne University, one didn't, and my son is a builder. Now, he wastes more money than my daughters do. The issue for him was that he, it wasn't that he didn't, sorry, he still, he had a choice and he wanted to do something. So for, for us, it's about breaking a cycle where you don't think you're good enough, you're not entitled, or the worst thing is you, the, the other thing about my mum, which is really sad, she was a really smart kid at school, so she went to St Bridget's in Carlton and she had a merit certificate, which in those days was big, it was Form 2. She was like a ducks from when she started school. She wanted to go on to business college. And when she was 12, her, her dad committed suicide, my grandfather, and her mother put her out to work the next year. So from the age of 13, she was working in factories. And the thing about that is that... An, I understand why my mum, she actually, she always resented education or was suspicious of it. So when I was a kid playing up in school, she never would say, oh, hang on, you've got to knuckle down and do well. She'd say, oh, that teacher, what would, you know. Like I've been, I used to go to meetings with the principal and he would be saying, look, your son has done this, you know, this is why he's been suspended. And she'd go, yeah. And then she'd walk out, she'd go, he's an idiot. <laughs> And when you're 13, that's good to hear that, but it, it, <laughs> it also means that you don't value it. So I think when I got expelled from school, part of it was so I don't want to be here. This place isn't for me. And it was only because I realised in my 20s I, I got one chance and if I miss out, I'll really regret it. But I feel now more the value of that that, so, yeah, when I was an undergraduate, my oldest daughter, Erin, who's 40, who went through Melbourne Uni, she launched my book last week, by the way, she, um, she started prep. And when I used to pick her up from school, I'd go from school to the English lecture at 4.15 at Melbourne. And why that mattered is that my kids have been around the university f and when I started to teach, they would, you know, hang around in my office and stuff. So they weren't afraid of it. They weren't afraid, they didn't see it as alien or foreign to them. I mean, the good side of it, and talking about academics, I, my daughter did really well in history and got to honours and got a really good honours mark, got offered a PhD scholarship. And I said, oh, you do that, you might want to be an academic. She goes, the last thing I want to do is be like you. <laughs> and my best friend, a guy called Chris, said, I don't want to end up like him. <laughs> so she, she actually thought, no, I'll get out while I can. Because once you're there for, a, once you're at university for a certain period, no one else will give you a job. <laughs> no, look, we only had one question and it took you 10 minutes to answer. Sorry. So, 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 I, I mean, I, I, Sorry. I, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid we've reached 8 o'clock. We're Sorry. kind of out of time. I, I, and we I, don't go over. We no, don't go no, over. I just, I just want to say what a privilege it is to have you come to Millennium and speak to us. I, I've been, long been a an admirer of your writing and it's just an absolute delight. Thank you so much for Thank coming. You.